The views and discussion expressed on this program do not necessarily represent those of the hosts of the program. WMKV, Maple Knoll Communities, WLHS, the Lakota Local School District, or staff and management. The information and advice presented are educational in nature and not intended to be taken as specific legal, accounting, or other professional advice. Always consult with your own legal, accounting, or other professional before making any investment. Welcome to Real Life Real Estate Investing, a show to help you gain financial freedom by investing in real estate. Brought to you by the Real Estate Investors Association of Cincinnati and the Ohio Real Estate Investors Association. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing on WMKV, WLHS, and the Maple Knoll Radio Network. And now your host, Vena Jones-Cox. Good afternoon. I am Vina Jones-Cox, and this is Real Life Real Estate Investing, your nation's public radio source for the news and information and advice and techniques and experts you need to start or build a business investing in real estate. Today is the last Wednesday of the month, and as is usual for the last Wednesday of the month, that makes it question and answer week. And that means that there is no topic other than what you want to talk about. How do you go about talking about it? Well, you can either go to our website at askvina.com and uh, use the Ask Vina button to send in a question via email. Or if you're in the greater Cincinnati area, you can send, you can uh, give us a call at 772 772- 9658. If you happen to be listening to us on the web at wmkvfm.org, we also have a toll-free number for you, 877-772-9658. While we are waiting for the questions to start pouring in, the Real Estate Investors Association of Greater Cincinnati has its first meeting for the month of May tomorrow at the usual location, the Community Action Agency building on the corner of Langdon Farm and Reading Roads. Uh, We are talking at that meeting to some folks who manage their own real estate funds who have filed uh, to get exemptions from the SEC just as Jillian Sidoti and others have talked about here on Real Life Real Estate. They've actually gone out and done it and started raising money for their real estate businesses. And they're going to talk about that process and why they did it and how it works and all of those neat things. Uh, That meeting is open to the public. You can get more information at CincinnatiRIA.com. That's CincinnatiREIA.com. Again, question and answer week here on Real Life Real Estate. Send your questions in via email through our website at askvina.com or give us a call at 877-772-9658. Uh, first question today comes in from the askvina.com contact form. This is from Jay, and I'm going to have to ask this question a little bit uh, carefully because Jay mentions a specific website here. And since we're on public radio, we don't recommend for or against commercial products like this. So I will I will state it this way. I'm sure you've had this question before, but is, and he names a 
free online site where you can find house values. A decent place for comps. I'm guessing it depends, but I was wondering how realistic this site is. I've heard some investors say it's not too bad, but I wanted your insightful opinion. P.S. I'd like to move on to a paid service in time. Well, all of the sites like the one that you name, Jay, uh, have something in common. I have a couple things in common, really. Uh, one of which is that although they do offer the ability to find comparable sales, they don't really do it in such a way that it makes it quicker, easy for you. So if, if you were looking for an ideal system to find property values, what you would, of course, be able to do is go to that site and put in your property's address, the one you're trying to find the value of, and then a radius. You'd like to be able to say, I want to see all sales within a half a mile or a quarter of a mile. And you'd like to be able to put in a time frame, say, I only want to see things that sold within the last year. And you'd like to put in some other characteristics, like you'd like to be able to say, I only want to see houses that are within 200 square feet of mine, bigger or smaller. I'd like to see only houses that are brick. I'd like to see only houses that were not bank-owned properties when they sold. And if you've ever used this system or any of the ones like it, you're aware that it's not quite that flexible. Uh, it doesn't, the, 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 the sites uh, tend to be they give you general comps that you then have to sort out at, by by photos and by, um, you know, driving by them and so on and come up with the ones that are closest. So can you get the same comparables from these sites that you could from a paid service? Yes. Is it a much slower system? Yes. Are there some things thrown in with these sites that... Uh, sort of confuse the issue. Like most of them will do uh, what's called an AVM, uh, an automated valuation model, where rather than rather than say, well, here's the nine properties that have sold and what they've sold for, it will say, I, uh, I the site thinks this property is worth X dollars, and the model that they are using to get to that figure is kind of unknown. But the general consensus amongst folks I know that have used these sites is that that number is always going to be high. When you see when you see whatever that estimated number is, it's going to be a high number and not a reliable one. So in the absence of subscribing to one of the services that allows you to do all the things that I just talked about, it will work although you have to be careful to make sure that you are narrowing your comparables and you are driving around and looking at the properties and all of those sorts of things. You know who the seller was because if it was a bank. Hopefully you already know that bank-owned properties aren't, when they sell, they aren't considered arm's length transactions and you know something about the condition of the property. Uh, but the ideal is really to get a hold of one of these subscription services just because of the ease. You know, you can you can comp a property in under five minutes with a subscription service. With one of these services, it's more time-consuming and difficult. So uh, I hope that answered your question as uh, sort of vague as I had to be about the specific service that you were 
talking about, but um, hopefully that that tells you what you need to know. Uh, You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing. It's question and answer week here on Real Life Real Estate, and I need your questions or there is no show. You can send them in by going to askvina.com and clicking the Ask Vina a Question button, sending it by email, or you can give us a call at 877-772-9658. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Vina Jones-Cox. And to be perfectly clear about Mike, what Mike just said, I wasn't involved no, no, no. in the accident. I just got hung up <laughs> by the accident. <laughs> let's, not, let's, not, let's not scare people. Oh, look, five emails saying, I hope you're okay. Um, it's question and answer week here on Real Life Real Estate Investing. You can send in your questions about anything you'd like to know about real estate investing because if I don't know the answer I know people who do you can do it by going to the askvina.com website while you're there if you like you can fill out the uh, little response form there and every week receive a an email reminding you about the upcoming show and also including an interesting article at least I think it's interesting, about real estate investing. This week's article was about life estates and what to do when you run across one of those as a potential investment. And that'll come to you each and every week as a service to real life real estate listeners. That it's askvina.com. And of course, you can also send your question in uh that way. You can also give us a call at 877-772-9658. A question from Gene in Kentucky, and actually he has two questions, one of which is almost identical to the one that I just answered for Jay. So um, that part's been answered about the systems that you can use for comping. The other question is, uh, as a new wholesaler, what is the most ideal or best way to avoid the dreaded dealer status? Well, Gene, the answer to that is either don't wholesale, which is not a good solution, or accept the fact that when you put properties under contract for the purpose of selling the contracts, you are a dealer. And and avoiding dealer status just isn't possible. I mean, you can deny dealer status, but the IRS is not going to agree with you on that if they ever take a close look at your tax returns. The way that wholesalers deal with the fact that dealer status comes with a bunch of extra taxes and the inability to do some neat things like 1031 tax deferred exchanges is number one, they have a separate entity for their flipping businesses. So for instance, let's say that you you have a business where you wholesale some properties and you have a business where you buy some properties to hold on to. You want those in two separate entities, in two LLCs or two limited partnerships, so that the dealer status in the one doesn't taint the rental properties in the other one. This, the other piece of, of having that entity is being able to legally reclassify some of your income as uh, so as as uh, uh, depending on the kind of entity it is, um, effectively dividend income, which of course is not dealer income. It's it's treated as the same as if you had a stock dividend that was paid to you. So entity is the answer. You know, um, lots of 
record keeping in terms of the money that you are spending on postage and driving for dollars and the computer your business needs and so on so that you can maximize your deductions and reclassifying the income so that some of it is salary, some of it is dividends or the equivalent uh, is the way to go about it. And of course, owning rental properties, assuming that you have flow through entities, uh, the depreciation can help offset some of that extra income tax as well. So I wish there was an easy secret answer, although I guess if it was secret, I probably would not be able to say it on the radio. But uh, that's the one and only solution. Question here from somebody who doesn't say where he is from. Um, Worst deal of the year. I'm going to have to come back to that one because I'm going to have to think about that one over the break. Uh, How is the role of investor limited? This is from Tim in I don't know where. How is the role of investment investor limited when doing owner financing a wrap or lease option and also is there anything published in plain English you can suggest that we read uh Tim I'm going to assume that this is a question about the Dodd-Frank Act because I'm not sure what you mean by how is the role of the investor limited and yet the next question that you asked had to do with different kinds of owner financing uh, so I'm going to assume you perhaps listened to the show a couple of weeks ago about the Dodd-Frank Act with Jeff Watson which by the way you can listen to on iTunes at our, our podcast on iTunes uh, and that was about as plain Eng- English as the discussions come uh, I mean basically Tim what you need to do is you need to familiarize yourself with this law because what it is going to restrict you from doing is things that we very commonly have done with owner financing and that make a lot of sense in owner finance type situations such as balloons in the loan, such as uh, adjustable rate loans that uh, can adjust every year because there's a restriction about when you can start doing that and that it has to be set to some index like 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 the, the LIBOR or something like that, uh, and that you have to fully qualify your buyer. You have to make sure that he can, in fact, uh, reasonably and easily afford the payments Uh, based on his income, his possibility of continued income, and his debt-to-income ratios. And you have to confirm all of that information. You know, the, 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 the advantage and disadvantage of owner financing from the perspective of both the folks like us who are giving it and the folks who are receiving it is that traditionally it has been a way that people who could not qualify under conventional mortgage standards to get a mortgage for whatever reason, whether that be credit score or not enough time on the job or uh, maybe they're self-employed and they don't always claim all their income, things like that, uh, is a lot easier with owner financing. Like you're willing sometimes, depending on the rest of the situation, to sell a property on owner financing to a person who maybe had a bankruptcy a couple of years ago because of a health problem or something like that. Uh, maybe their maybe their credit score isn't super high because they have, they 
they had were they had a foreclosure a year ago, but they've got good income and good job prospects. And um, now that the house is off their back, they can well afford this new house. But the what the Dodd Frank Act does is it makes us all more or less follow the same standards as banks do, which doesn't seem quite right, does it? Since banks have endless lawyers to keep them in compliance with this kind of stuff. And with many of us, it's just us trying to figure out how to follow an 800-page law that, you know, we didn't cause the problems that caused it in the first place. So, uh, Tim, I would listen to the show that Jeff did uh, a couple of weeks ago. Go go to iTunes and look, look at our account and listen to the program repeatedly if you have to. And just follow what he says, because uh, the, right now that is what we know. The other thing that, of course, is very confusing about the Dodd-Frank Act is that as of right now, only about half of the rules required by the law have been written. So there's this vague, you know, you have to do these things, but there's no, there's no actual rules telling you how to do it or what compliance means. So you're in the same boat as the rest of us in wondering how that should be complied with. It's Real Life Real Estate Investing. It's question and answer week. 877-772-9658 is the number here in the studio. You can also go to askvina.com and send us a question uh, that direction. When you do that, uh, please remember to say where you're writing from because sometimes that does make a difference in what the answer is going to be. Uh, we have a question here from Tom in, again, unknown land, but luckily this is kind of a national question. Uh, here's my question. I'm trying to figure out how banks account for REOs and underperforming, non-performing, or foreclosures in their books. <laughs> yeah, just stop you right there, Tom. We're all trying to figure that out, too. Um, I've got some examples that I could present to the banks to show how much money they're losing by not accepting offers. No, you don't, because they're losing more money than you even think they are. You're doing the math as, well, they loaned $180,000, and now the property's only worth ninety, and they won't take an offer of ninety, so they're going to take it through foreclosure, which is going to cost them $12,000, and then it's going to sit on the market. It's going to get vandalize and so really they're going to end up instead of getting the 90 I'm offering they're going to get to you're you're doing all that math it's more than that I read a statistic a couple of years ago that said on the average banks lose about $55,000 on every foreclosure that they do because they also have their own overhead they've got you know things that they're dealing with uh, on on their and then and then you know some of the loans have mortgage insurance so they're not losing as much as it looks like uh, in any case, let me finish your question here. I am getting the impression that they like keeping some properties in inventory so they can represent them as losses when they need to. I don't think that's quite it. I think it's really the other way around. Some, some I know of some banks that are keeping properties in inventory because if they sell them, they have to recognize the losses. And until they sell them, they can keep pretending like they're worth more, they're worth what they made the loan for as opposed to what they're actually worth in today's market. 
Uh, do you have any experience in dealing with drinks directly? I'm not talking about the smaller local ones, but the big ones. Uh, n- no, because the big banks won't deal directly with you unless you, you know, have proof of funds for $100 million and can buy a thousand of their REOs all at once. Tom, beating your head up against that particular wall is not only useless, it will drive you nuts. Sitting around trying to figure out why this bank let this property go for pennies on the dollar, but they're holding out on this one for twice what it's worth. And then all of a sudden that one goes off the market. You find out that they sold it in a bulk package for pennies on the dollar, even though you were offering more than that, you'll go nuts. So the the thing, to, oh, and, and by the way, trying to prove to them on any individual property that they're asking too much or losing money or whatever, also useless. That is, I, I have tried that in the past, but I got over it because they don't even look at stuff like that. It used to be that the recommendation from a lot of gurus who talked about buying foreclosures was, well, go out and take photos of the house and send them in with your offer so the bank knows how bad it is. The bank knows exactly what it looks like. The bank's got asset managers who've already done all of that, taken the photos, given them a report. Their realtor has to give them a new report every month on the condition of the property and how many showings there have been and how many offers there have been. And so they know, okay, they know. They're making decisions for internal bookkeeping reasons that uh, have a lot to do with the way the rules were changed during the bailout and so on. And as much as I'd love to see you go tilting at that windmill and, and actually change Citibank's mind about how they're doing things, it's not going to happen. So here's what you do with bank-owned properties with the big banks. You send in your offer, and then you move on. And in a couple of weeks, they'll say yes, no, or counter. And you never will know why they did any of those things. But you just move on and, and keep going and don't get hung up on any one property or the idea that you're going to make any difference through your commentary. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing. It's question and answer week. You can send in your questions by going to the askvena.com website, or you can give us a call at 877-772-9658. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Vena Jones-Cox, and we're playing a game today called Stump the Goddess. And the way we play is you send your questions. In. You can either go to askvina.com to do that, or you can call 877-772-9658. Any questions you have regarding buying, managing, financing, selling, marketing for, etc. Um, the, uh, the day is today. It's the last Wednesday of the month, and that's what we do here on Real Life Real Estate on the last Wednesday of the month. A uh, question here from, oh, and by the way, askvina.com is not an email address. You're going to askvina.com, which is a website, and there's a button there that says, ask Vina a question. You click that button, you fill in the form, you hit send, and it comes to me. That's how that works. A uh, question from Paul in Long Beach. Jim was hosting when they interviewed the Deal of the Year winners in December and said you had won the worst Deal of the Year award. Congratulations. I was wondering if you could explain the deal and what we should learn from it. Sorry to make you relive it. Well, I was stumpy. I was I was like I was I was stumped by this question. I actually went into the other room and asked my associate which deal I had used as worst deal of the year this year. 
because I have won that award from Cincinnati Rhea on three separate occasions in the last 15 years. Now, partly that's because that is the only category in which I can compete and almost be assured the trophy because people love it when I get up and say, look at this terrible deal I got involved in. Um, and part of the reason is you, you don't do a thousand deals and not have some that you wish had turned out differently than they did. Um, again, I, I honestly, I cannot remember what specific deal I used to uh, uh, have that have that particular award last year. I was kind of thinking through 2013 and going, which what were the losers? What were the losers? Um, here is the lesson, though, Paul. You will have deals that don't turn out the way you wanted them to. If you do enough deals, it is inevitable that you will have some that lose money. Sometimes they lose money because you made bad decisions and you bought a property because you loved it or you bought a property in an area that you didn't understand and it, it, uh, uh, None of the numbers met up with your expectations. Sometimes you lose money because you lose focus on the particular deal. Uh, I've had situations where uh, I started out in some in some complex property or some complex transaction that was going to require a whole lot of ongoing follow up to make it work, and a lot of rehab or a lot of um, management, something like that, and. Other things just got in the way that were higher priority or sometimes in a deal you get to the point where you're like, I can either go spend another 10 hours on this one and try and make it work or in that same 10 hours, I could do two or three more deals. It's not, it's not fatal to do a bad deal every once in a while. And I can probably think of four or five deals if pressed where I actually truly lost money, like like purchase price, what I put in it, what I ended up selling it for, that last number was smaller than the combination of the first two numbers. Most of the deals that I look back on and say, well, that was a bad deal, were, were really bad because they didn't make as much as they were supposed to, or they were a big hassle, or uh, there was some sort of internal problem with a tenant or something like that. It's just, you can't, you can't curl up in a ball when that happens and decides you're stupid and you don't know what you're doing and this doesn't work and so on. And I say that because there are a lot of folks out there and, and if this is you, yes, I'm talking to you, whoever you are, that after the real estate market crashed in 2007, uh, lost everything. Their, their business model was just such that without easy financing or without the availability of lots of buyers who got easy financing, they couldn't make it work. And some of them struggled for a number of years and, and did, you know, lots of things to try and save it, but ended up losing all their properties and their credit and everything else uh, to the to the fact that we had the biggest downturn in real estate in like 100 years. So some of those folks came out the back end of that and said, lesson learned, different market, different strategies, not going to sign my name on mortgages anymore, going to do what the market demands instead of trying to make a business model that doesn't work anymore work. 
And some of them curled up in a little ball and are still in the corner somewhere in the little ball, wondering what to do with their lives. And it's that latter group that I just, I sort of wish I could go out there and, and, and uncurl them and say, look around you. You know, you know what you need to know to make money in this business. You did it once. The fact that the exact thing that you were doing in 2007 or 2008 doesn't work today doesn't mean you don't have a lot of other knowledge and information that you could apply to the market today and make lots of money. Yeah, it was a it was a huge failure, but it was a business failure. It wasn't a personal failure. You didn't cause the recession and the downturn and the lack of financing and so on. And, uh, you know, get up and get up and go out and do something because you know what to do. You just are afraid to because you had that bad thing happen to you. I think there's still a lot of real estate investors, ex-real estate investors out there who are suffering from the investor equivalent of post-traumatic stress syndrome because of 2007 and 2008. A question here from Nate, who is in, I don't know where. I am trying to sell my current home in order to buy a new home. I have a contract pending on the sale of this home. I assume that's the old home. I also have the opportunity to lease my current home. However, my banker has told me that under the Dodd-Frank Act, there is no way to count rental income against my debt to income ratio unless I have been collecting rent for at least two years. Is this correct? Or is there a way to have the rental lease income from my current home count as income for the purposes of getting this additional mortgage? So the mortgage on your new house. Well, That is a very interesting question, Nate. And weirdly, it is the second time that I have heard that question or one just like it today. I actually had one of my coaching students ask a very similar question about a property that she was buying. To my knowledge, and I will double check this and get back to you with an exact answer, But to my knowledge, the Dodd-Frank Act requires that the bank qualify you in terms of your income. It does not, to my knowledge, say that that income has to have come from a rental property for two years before we can count it. Now, remember, as I said a little while ago, about half of the rules for Dodd-Frank have not been officially written So it could be that your banker is reading something into, or your bank, probably not the banker, I don't want to say it's his fault, the compliance department of the bank is reading something in there that's not officially there, or it could be that since I've gotten this question twice today, that I need to go back and read all 800 pages of the Dodd-Frank Act and uh, find that it is in fact there. The important thing here is that they're telling you whether they're right or wrong the bank is telling you they're not going to count the rental income until the property has been rented for two years and I am going to assume that the only reason this conversation came up is that they are also saying that if you don't have if you still have this this mortgage you're not going to qualify otherwise based on your debt to income ratio. And the question that I would go back and ask the bank is what if I sold it on installments instead? In other words, what if I did a contract for deed? For instance, 
instead of a rental, would that make any difference? And I would also ask him to quote you where in Dodd-Frank it says that you have to have had that property rented for two years before they can count it against your debt-to-income ratio. Now, if you haven't leased it at all, which it maybe looks like you haven't, I can understand why they don't want to count income that's not there, but two years? I don't know about that. But I will I will check with my experts and I will get back to you on that uh, in a future show. Oh my gosh, so many Dodd-Frank questions. Here's yet another one. Uh, one of the strategies I like to pursue is mortgage assignments. With Dodd-Frank, for, however, there are a lot, of a, a lot of attorneys that have decided not to close these types of deals. This makes me a little hesitant to go for it. Has Dodd-Frank changed anything that people do with these types of deals? How do I stay within the boundaries of the law? Is there anything in particular I need to keep in mind as I do these deals? Um, Paul, are you talking about a true mortgage assignment in the sense of you're buying a property subject to the existing loan and then assigning that deal to someone else. Because if so, my problem with that strategy is not the Dodd-Frank Act. My problem with that strategy is you are leaving a civilian buyer and a civilian seller in a deal that neither one of them probably fully understands and which could fall apart on either side very easily and leave the buyer or the seller damaged in a way that they will not know how to recover from. I am much more comfortable with something like a lease option assignment where if the buyer doesn't pay, it's a simple matter of eviction for the seller. And where if the seller goes into foreclosure, uh, the buyer has 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 only the the lease option tenant has only put up um, you know an option fee, not not a full down payment. Uh, in terms of how does Dodd Frank affect these? Well, it kind of depends on how you are doing this. Are you literally assigning the contract so that the seller is selling directly to the buyer? Because in that case, it's the seller who would be subject to Dodd Frank, not you. And probably the seller wouldn't be subject to Dodd Frank because it would probably be his personal residence that he was selling, and it would probably be the only one he was doing. But I, I am uncomfortable with the strategy in general. Much more so than doing something like a lease option assignment. Um, that is my personal opinion, of course, not my legal opinion, as I am not an attorney. And if you are still determined to do that, despite all of what I just said, you probably should uh, look at finding a licensed mortgage originator to close the deals instead of an attorney, because it's the, one of the requirements of Dodd Frank is after you do a certain number of deals. Uh, you need to have a licensed mortgage originator closing them anyway, and thus your problem will sort of be solved by having that person in the middle of the deal, and uh, he will make sure of all the things that we talked about, like uh, that the contracts are correct and that um, the buyer is qualified and so on. A uh, question from Connie in Cincinnati. Connie says, how do you handle an earnest money deposit to an out-of-town seller when you are making an offer or do you not address this issue? Uh, so out-of-town seller, no real estate agent involved, I'm assuming is the nature of the question here. Earnest money deposits don't have to be 
real sizable, Connie. So the simple way to do it, if you want to give a seller earnest money, is offer them $10 or $100 or something, something that you're not going to be upset about walking away from if the deal doesn't consummate because the seller turns out not to be able to sell. And just send them a check. And you can put in the contract that it's refundable to you if the deal doesn't close, but frankly, you don't you don't really care if it's that little bit of money. If it is a more significant earnest money deposit, for instance, if you might if you were buying an apartment building and the seller was insisting that if he didn't get a $10,000 earnest money deposit, he wasn't going to tie his building up. Uh, you can escrow those deposits with people other than real estate agents. You can escrow them with attorneys. You can escrow them with title companies. Just make sure that when you do that, the escrow company has a very detailed escrow agreement that outlines the conditions under which the money will be given to the seller, the conditions under which the money will be returned to you, and the uh, there's going to need to be a clause in there that says that the escrow agent is not going to be held liable for doing anything that the contract tells him to do, even if one of you later becomes unhappy with it. So tell the tell the seller, you know, you choose your escrow company, I'll choose my, you know, whoever you want. I'll use my attorney, my title company, you can use your attorney or title company, but we both need to sign this, agree upon and sign this set of escrow instructions. Just here's the thing. Here's, here's the general rule, Connie. Don't give sellers earnest money directly in amount, in an amount in excess of that which you would happily walk away from. The reason that escrow companies exist, the reason that realtors have escrow accounts, is that if you as the buyer give the seller money, the seller's going to spend it. (laughs) And it doesn't matter if it's $10 or $100 or $100,000. If something goes wrong in the deal, you're not going to probably get it back easily. So just if you if you will keep that thought in mind of, am I giving this person so much money that if the deal didn't close and it wasn't even my fault, that I'd be upset about losing it, it goes into escrow. End of story. That's a that's a that's a hard learned lesson for me. One of those really bad deals that Paul asked about was one where very early on I gave ten thousand dollars worth of earnest money to a seller who turned out to not own the house. Yes, that's right. She said she said, well, it was three houses. She's selling three houses. And she said, look, I've got like three other offers on this. And I, you know, I don't know you. So I, I need $10,000 worth of earnest money because you're paying, I don't remember what the number was, call it $50,000 for the three houses. And, you know, I don't know how serious you are and I don't want to tie it up. And that all sounded very reasonable to me because this was like my ninth deal or something. And I gave her a check for $10,000 and then the title search came back. Yes, then the title search came back because that's how innocent I was. I didn't even get a title search first. And it said that she owned the property along with her ex-husband and her ex-husband's father. And so still very innocent, not realizing that she, in fact, had scammed me intentionally. I called her up and I said, 
we get, need to get your we need to get these other two people on the uh, on the purchase agreement because my title company tells me that they can't close it without their signatures, and she didn't return my call. So still not realizing what was going on, I I wrote her a letter and I said this is what we need to happen. And then like a week later, I got a notice from the bankruptcy court that she had declared bankruptcy and named me as a creditor in the bankruptcy. Yep, $10,000 gone. And trust me, when I was 24 years old, that was a lot of money. That was that was a big thing to have to recover from. And uh, I, you know, of course, I called my attorney and I said, this, this isn't, I mean, this is like fraud. She knew she couldn't, she spent my money. She knew she couldn't sell the houses. Can she go to jail? And the attorney said, ah, you're never going to get anything out of her. So don't bother. But as you can probably tell from the sound of my voice, that still aches as of today. Uh, time for just a couple of last minute questions here on question and answer week on real life, real estate investing. A question from David in Maryland, who interestingly is dialing the 877 number and he says it's not going he says it's going to some other business. Well, you know you're calling a radio station, right, David? They probably answered like WMKV or something like that. Because that's where we are. We're actually broadcasting. This isn't a webinar. Uh, so his question is, I'm seeing properties delisted. This is in regards to, to bank-owned properties. I'm seeing co- properties delisted and then relisted at a much higher asking price. Is this happening because of the time of the year or something else? I'm seeing more with foreclosures and REOs and the properties that are in need of rehab. Any thoughts? Uh, depending on, I've got a couple of thoughts, David. Number one, depending on where you are in Maryland, if you're close to the DC Beltway, you're actually in a very hot market. And you could just be seeing a reflection of the fact that prices are going up there. I think it's more likely that what's happening is you're seeing properties that are on the market with, let's call it Bank A. They get withdrawn so that Bank A can sell them as part of a bulk package to Hedge Fund B. And then Hedge Fund B is relisting them at the higher price. Because we see that around here and we're not in a super hot market around here. And that doesn't mean Hedge Fund B is going to sell them at that price. Because I promise you Hedge Fund B bought them at a much lower price then then bank a had them listed for before because they bought a thousand of them all in one fell swoop so go ahead and make your offer check the public record when it becomes available and see if it didn't transfer because very often you'll find that the property did in fact transfer um, many times the hedge funds are offering some sort of financing, which of course does raise the value of the properties and they're putting them in MLS to draw attention to that fact. Uh, you have to, you have to kind of backtrack and see what happened between the delisting and the relisting to sort of understand what happened there. But it's probably that they were sold as a bulk package to a new owner and the new owner is the one who's relisted at a higher price. Well, that is it for question and answer week. We got an exciting month of May planned out for you. So be sure and tune into Real Life Real Estate every Wednesday at 5 p.m. Or check us out on our podcasts on iTunes. We'll be back next week with more information to put you on the path to financial independence through real estate investing. Until then, happy investing. Happy investing.